Hello and welcome all of my artists, art lovers, and creatives of all kinds. This is Raven's Fine Art. My name is Raven. And today we are going to be wrapping up our discussion of Mr. Pablo Picasso. We are going to be discussing uh, his most significant contribution to the art world, Cubism. Um, and uh, thank you for those who gave me some feedback on the next book that we will tackle. It will be Think and Grow Rich from an artist's perspective, so I'm looking forward to that. But for now, let us wrap up our discussion of Picasso and discuss Cubism. So stay tuned. All right, so last week we discussed the important piece, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. So there was about a one-year hiatus between the time that that work was completed and when he started working on his next uh, movement. Um, and this was unusual for Picasso. He's always uh, pretty much a decisive person, moving from one thing to the next. But you can imagine uh, Les Demoiselles had uh, such a profound impact on people and probably on him as well that he needed some time um, to just kind of work out what he should do next. Um, so he had met Brock. Um, so Brock was his co-conspirator um, coming up with Cubism. And they met for the first time in autumn of 1907. Um, Brock was from Normandy and he was actually trained as um, a painter decorator before actually becoming a fine artist. And both he and uh, Picasso were very much into Cezanne. Um, Picasso actually owned um, a few of Cezanne's pieces. So they had that in common. Um, so when they met, they hit it off and they formed kind of an artistic alliance, started working together, and that collaboration uh, led directly to the birth of Cubism. So that's really significant because um, sometimes artists can be very obviously insulated and insular working by themselves in the studio. But really incredible things can happen when you open yourself up to working with others, even if you're not, you know, necessarily painting, you know, on the same pieces, although there are some artists that do that. I think that's kind of challenging. But um, when you're just collaborating in the sense of you're exchanging ideas, uh, you're doing your own separate work, but you're coming together and you're working towards the same goal, that can really be powerful because you're going beyond what either of you can do on your own. Um, another thing I wanted to point out, uh, I mentioned that Picasso owned a few pieces of Cezanne's, and I noticed that a lot of artists seem to be resistant to, sometimes uh, resistant to purchasing the art of other artists. I'm not sure why. Um, maybe it's because you know you can do your own work, so you're thinking, why would I purchase art from someone else? but it can actually be really powerful for two reasons. A, just the general inspiration that art always provides, uh, art always uplifts us. 
Um, two, it gets you beyond just what you can make, because obviously what you're making is coming from the depths of your soul, but it's really, you know, can be refreshing and you can get something different from the art of someone else because they're coming at life from a whole different perspective. So a lot of times art that speaks to you might be opposite to the art that you do yourself, but it can really enrich your life. And then thirdly, if you expect people to buy your work, um, you need to put yourself in the position of customer so that you can understand kind of what they're going through when they're trying to choose art. So you can't expect people to do for you what you're not willing to do for someone else. So if you don't understand uh, the magic of purchasing art, you can't really expect people to understand the magic of buying your art. Um, so I just wanted to make a note of that because Picasso um, loved art, not just his own art, but he was inspired by Cezanne to the point where he bought um, a piece or several pieces. And what he loved about Cezanne is his skill at composition. So th that's another thing too. A lot of times another artist will have a skill um, that you don't have. And by buying into their art, you're kind of not only getting better at that skill, uh, but you're kind of balancing yourself out as an artist. Um, all right, so Brock and Picasso started working on cubisms uh, around 1708. So they met in 1707, uh, started collaborating uh, more sincerely in uh, 1908. So reading from page 82, talking about this relationship between Picasso and Brock. Um, so whereas Picasso made a lot of noise, Brock tended to remain silent. At times, particularly at the start when their paintings were monochromatic, it is sometimes difficult to tell their work apart. And it's interesting that they often came together at intervals, usually during the summers spent on the Mediterranean coast in order to confer on how to solve difficulties arising in the development of cubism. Sada K, 1910, Serret, 1911, Sorg, uh, 1912. Uh, so the partnership between these two artists has been described as the most unlikely and the most fruitful collaboration in the history of art. Indeed, Brock, was the only artist with whom Picasso had such a close working relationship. So that's very interesting when you think about the fact that they were able to work together so well. And one of the reasons why is because they were uh, different. So they had similar paths, they had similar interests, um, but they were different in temperament. So certainly when you're going to collaborate with somebody, you do have to look at not only their skill set, but you have to look at uh, the way you guys complement one another. So uh, Picasso is a very bombastic, bold, you know, force of nature. So he couldn't, you know, work with somebody who was just like that. All they would do is butt heads and waste time. So he needed somebody who was quieter, who was more probably uh, thoughtful, intellectual, um, somebody willing to take a step backwards to, to think. Um, and so they, they made a great pair and out of that union came something really beautiful.
All right, so moving on to the features, some of the features of Cubism, um, and also how they came, how Picasso came about this discovery. So as in 1906, when Gossel, so that's where he had visited previously, um, proved to be a turning point, so too, a return to Spain in the summer of 1909 was crucial for Picasso's development beyond Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. It was then that the artist went back to Horta de San Juan, a small mountainous village close to the border between Catalonia and Aragon. The sight lines of the huddled village building seen in intense sunlight inspired Picasso to declare his credentials as a Cubist painter. As Gertrude Stein shrewdly commented, quote, Spanish architecture always cuts the lines of the landscape, and it is that that is the basis of Cubism, unquote. The watercolor of the mill at Corte de San Juan reduces the view to its essentials. The mill dominates the center with a mountain and a stretch of water deftly suggested in the background. So Picasso here is getting inspired by his environment like he had done before um, previously, which had led to the birth of Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. So either instinctually or purposefully, we don't know, um, he's sensing that changing his location is going to lead to um, inspiration. And he found that in the architecture of the area. So moving on, this is on page 88. The system of one point perspective with a single vanishing point discovered during the Renaissance had aimed to present the world as realistically as possible. But now, Brock and Picasso were beginning to think in terms of depicting the multiple viewpoints of a landscape in a single image, where before, artists encouraged the viewer to accept the world in stasis, now what was on offer was a world in flux. Okay, so Cubism was so incredibly fascinating and groundbreaking because of that, because it was going beyond the normally acceptable, you know, realistic view of perspective, one point or two point perspective. And now what we're trying to do is to get multiple viewpoints at once. So when you're looking at a Cubist painting, you're looking at the front and the side and the top and the bottom <laughs> all at once. And, and you can see that if you look closely and it's, it's really cool because it, it makes you look at the painting longer because you're trying to figure out which way is up and it, it's not straightforward. It's inviting you into the world of the painting. So that's, what's really fascinating about cubism. So moving on, on that same page, 88, Picasso returned to Paris in the autumn of 1909 and prepared to move on from Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. To mark this moment, he left the Bateau Lavoie, where he was living, and took a large apartment on the Boulevard de Clichy at the foot of Montmartre, the first of several moves made in Paris as his reputation grew. He was now in a position to devote himself totally to the development of the Cubist style in his painting and sculpture. 
The result was the invention of a whole new visual language in art. It was matched by similar radical advances in literature, philosophy, and music. The dramatic nature of these developments has to be seen against the background of events that ended in one of the most cataclysmic events in the history of humanity, namely the First World War. Okay, so this passage is, is key because it's telling you that yes, you know, Picasso was doing his own innovations and he was step by step moving into this new style as we see him growing through Blue Period, Rose Period, Les Demoiselles, and then now Cubism. But what's important to note, as the passage says, is that there were other similar radical advances being made in literature, philosophy, and music. So another thing that often gets short shrift is the environment and the, the time period where a person is making their work. So it's always going to be in context. So a lot of times when breakthroughs are being made, it's not just the breakthrough by the individual artist. It's usually spread out and it's it's one of those things where something in the zeitgeist is, is being picked up by multiple people and artists of all kinds are uh, making use of, of that new wave of thought and putting it into their artwork. So in a way, all the artists are kind of supporting one another because they're all picking up on the same thing and expressing it through their own various art forms. Okay. All right, so moving on to page 90, we're talking about more about cubism and its goals. So the aim was not to continue making images in a mimetic way based on a fixed viewpoint at one particular moment, but to heighten responses and to provide greater conviction by rendering motifs as though observed simultaneously from several viewpoints and at several moments in time. The images derived from such an accumulation of visual information could be represented on a two-dimensional support only in an innovative and somewhat literal fashion, comprising closely juxtaposed groups of fractured forms and faceted shapes. Such a style relied on a far greater interactive relationship between artist and viewer than ever before. This involved subterfuge and collusion on both sides, but ultimately it depended on the empathy of the viewer. A style incorporating fragmentation, simplification, and schematization was not meant to be interpreted as disfigurement, but as a better way of reaching a higher level of verisimilitude, or what Salman described as early as 1912 as an object's quote, total existence. Picasso himself said, quote, we wanted to paint not what you see, but what you know is there, unquote. Paintings formerly striving for credibility now searched for something more akin to palpability, okay? So what this passage is saying so well is that they are actually trying to approach reality in a different way. So painting what Picasso said, they wanted to paint what, not what you see, but what you know is there. So normally when you're looking at a painting before this time, you know, a traditional painting, 
you know, you're looking at kind of a slice of life. Um, is basically like the old style of photograph. So, and this was, you know, uh, Picasso was around before photography really took off, but then in the early 20th century, as, as photography did, you know, catch on, you know, reality just being caught as it was, wasn't enough. So they, they wanted to go beyond that and not just capture things as they exist, um, but to see beyond it. So it's really inviting participation by the viewer so it's not just passively looking, okay, yeah, that's a mountain. Yeah, that's a building. It's like, no, like when he was doing his original, you know, cubist landscapes of the Spanish architecture, what you're seeing is the play of lights, the play of shapes. You're seeing multiple perspectives. You're approaching reality in a completely new way. And that's what was so groundbreaking. Okay. Um, so the problem with this though, whenever you're doing something innovative is that you, it's like you don't want to completely leave your society behind. So you're trying to go beyond what is, and you're trying to uh, move into the future, but you have to remember, so the average person who you do want to communicate and connect with and hopefully, hopefully purchase your work, you don't want to leave them in the dust. So. The next quote is on page 90. There was a danger in all of this cubism uh, that it might become too hermetic, meaning mysterious, or occluded. And so clues were often provided to help viewers in the titles, the brand names of objects, or the introduction of identifiable personal attributes. So this was a way for them to, the Cubist artists, um, particularly Brock and Picasso, to not, you know, get too far off into the weeds of what they were trying to do, but to remember to communicate with their audience. So they would leave little clues um, in the title and in the objects themselves and little identifiable messages within the work to give people a clue as to what they're looking at. <laughs> okay, because I'm sure that's um, the first thing on everyone's mind when they're first looking at a cubist work is, uh, what am I looking at? All right. So interestingly and predictably, cubism was not accepted widely at first. Okay. So moving on the same page 90, the term cubism was as with impressionism earlier coined by a hostile critic. In its purest sense, it is a term that should be defined only by reference to its leading practitioners, which would be Brock, Picasso, Juan Gris, and Fernand Legere. Okay, so this is really interesting. So, you know, you have to have haters. So I'm sure I said on a previous podcast, if you don't have haters, you need to get you some because that's gonna be your, your key and your cue that you are moving in a, a radical and innovative direction. So if people are hating on you, take that as a positive sign. Uh, so on page 92, uh, the radical nature of cubism meant that its practitioners relied heavily on their supporters. Okay, so that's another thing to note. Um, so to make it as an artist of any kind, of course you have to have your patrons, you have to have your supporters, but I think the thing that a lot of artists get into is feeling like, and, and that's based on fear and insecurity, but they feel like they need to uh, cast this wide net and appeal to as many people as possible. So Picasso really was never about that. 
and he became wealthy and famous. So it's a lesson to us that you do not need everybody's approval. And you certainly, you do need haters, okay? You definitely need your haters. Um, but you need your supporters as well. But you don't need a ton of them. You just need, you need them to be fiercely loyal and you need them to really have bought into your vision. So I think a, a really good modern day example that I can think of off the top of my head is Woody Allen. So Woody Allen um, has an extremely, very, very niche product. I mean, now he's kind of moved into obscurity because of all the scandals and you know that's a whole other story. But he, his career was very prolific and it was based on, he had hardcore, hardcore supporters who would see anything. I mean, he could write his name on a piece of paper and put it on the screen and somebody, his core group, they're gonna buy tickets to go see that because they just supported him that much. And he had, you know, a very successful career you know, not because everybody loved him or because he had this wide reach, but because um, of an economically viable team of people supported him and his work fiercely and loyally, all right? So moving on to the whole process of developing cubism. So neither Picasso nor Brock, this is on page 92, found working in the cubist style easy. The process demanded a new and highly disciplined method of observation and manner of execution. Where traditional art was satisfied with closed forms, cubism went to the other extreme and sought to explode forms. It was an intellectual matter as much as an aesthetic one. Brock and Picasso taught themselves to view the world in the same way as a mechanic looks at a car engine, a doctor examines an x-ray, or a horologist peers into the mechanism of a clock. As a style, cubism may be described as complexity made beautiful. All right. Now, obviously some people are, don't think cubism is beautiful. I happen to believe that it is. Um, I love the way it uses collage. I love the multiple viewpoint. Um, I think it's very innovative. It reminds me kind of like a storybook in a way, like especially the ones that, that rely heavily on collage. Um, I think it's extremely beautiful. All right, so moving on. Um, so Picasso obviously was always um, thinking about his career and thinking about himself. <laughs> Um, so Picasso, page 98, was not above using cubism as a vehicle for private illusions and the expression of intimate affections. Inscriptions such as J'aime Eva and Jolie Eva appearing on several paintings of 1912, for instance, refer to Eva Goel, born Marcel Humbert, the woman who supplanted Olivier in Picasso's affections. Wah, wah, wah. Poor Olivier. So she's been by this dude's side through thick and thin, started off in that rat-infested apartment. Now Picasso is rich and famous. Well, he's, he's getting there anyway by this point, feeling himself, and now he's got a new object of his affection, some chick named Ava Goel. All right. So... Talking about Goel, so Goel was an exceedingly attractive, pert Parisian with bourgeois values. 
Neat and tidy in manner and appearance, she was in many ways the opposite of the more relaxed and bohemian Olivier. All right, so it's interesting. So he's with the bohemian chick all this time. They're going to all these art destinations. She was his muse. But now he's making a little bit of money. He's moving on to some bourgeois values and he's got the perfect representation, a bourgeois chick. All right, so wrapping up. So he's gone off with Goel, this new lady. He's uh, moved on from Olivier. And one thing that I noticed um, for the rest of the book is a lot of it is him moving from lover to lover, um, kind of as a reflection of his different art um, passions. So he's kind of like, he's really externalizing his internal process in his work and also in his choice of lovers. So that's interesting in some sense, but I um, am not really interested in pursuing all of that, his messy lifestyle. (laughs) Um, Most artists seem to have these messy uh, lifestyles and that's all well and good, but my interest is in the work. So that is basically wrapping up cubism. Cubism was a force of nature at the time. It certainly wasn't easy. Um, Brock and Picasso labored hard. Uh, They had to also think outside the box because think about it. I mean, they're part of their society as well. And even though they're getting these inspirations to move forward with this new vision, they're having to shake off the vision that they have had, the, the way of thinking that brought them where they are, you know, at that moment. And that's what we have to remember. So as we progress as human beings and as artists, we have to remember we're not only moving forward, we're also releasing the past. And that's a difficult process. And it's not easy, it's hard work because you have to step up to this new level and that requires letting go of what you already have, okay? All right, so that's cubism. So let's talk about our takeaways for this week and this whole book. So specifically from this chapter and cubism and this slice of life into Pablo Picasso, I've come up with five takeaways. So number one, collaborations with the right person can be groundbreaking. So we saw the coming together of Brock and Picasso and how fruitful it was uh, because they had the same interests, they had the same um, aesthetic, they had the same work ethic um, and they had the same vision, but they were complementary in their temperaments. Whereas Picasso was way out there, um, you know, Brock was a little bit more grounded and methodical. Number two, don't be afraid to go beyond the boundaries of what, of what people are currently find acceptable. So remember, the critics insulted both Impressionism and Cubism. So this is really important to remember. So people are always going to act like they know best what you should be doing. But whenever that happens to you, think back to Impressionism and Cubism. So the critics, now these are the, the critics were the professionals of the day. They were sort of the, uh, they were part of the gatekeeping crew. They were part of the establishment. And they said, that in both Impressionism and Cubism's case, they both said, hey, this sucks, you know, this isn't art, this is terrible, this should go away. They didn't know what they were talking about, okay? So don't don't listen to people, okay? You're an artist, listen to yourself. I, I, I really cringe 
when I'm in these artist groups that I'm in and I hear artists saying, is it okay to blah, 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 or should I blah, 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 I mean, stop it. Stop asking for permission. You're an artist. Do what you want to do. That's the whole beauty of being an artist. Don't ask permission. I don't even care if it's another artist. You think Picasso was going around asking other artists if they thought cubism was, was good or not? No, he had to work on it in the privacy of his own studio. He had to perfect it himself and then he came out with it. And even after he had, you know, his perfected version of cubism, still people didn't like it. So don't ask for permission. Just if, if necessary, ask for, you know, forgiveness. <laughs> but uh, definitely don't ask for permission. All right, number three, please do not try to be everything to everyone. Okay, you cannot please everybody and you shouldn't. You need a group of true fans with disposable income, of course, okay? Um, but who you are is as much about what you consistently say no to as much as what you say yes to. So remember, as you're progressing, you're saying yes to the new vision, but you're letting go and you're saying no to some things too. As you start re refining and perfecting your brand and your vision and your art style, you're also having to let go and say no to things that don't fit in with that. So don't be afraid to offend people. Don't be afraid to quote unquote disappoint people. People are always going to be more comfortable when you're doing what they want you to do. But that's not what you're here for, okay? You're here to be true to what's inside of you. All right, number four, but the, the counterbalance to what I just said is don't be too obscure, okay? Sometimes people go off into the weeds, navel gazing, and they forget to communicate with the viewers. So you gotta have somebody like your work. You don't need everybody, but you gotta have somebody. So as a light bearer, as a forerunner of society, which I believe artists are, your job is to is to hold the light up, is to be the standard bearer, is to pave the way. And in order to do that, you can't leave everybody behind. You at least have to give some clues as to what you're talking about to bridge the gap between this grand vision that you have and where the rest of society still is. Okay, it's gotta be palatable enough for them to join you on the journey and not just be confused and give up, okay? So don't forget about your artists, don't be too cryptic. Don't go too far off into your own head and get lost in there because you're gonna leave behind your mission, which is to communicate and to, um, to, to provide the example and the insightful ideas that your society can uh, grow from, okay? So like all artists, whether you're a visual artist, a writer, dancer, your job is to pave the way for the rest of society to see life in a new and elevated way. And number five, do not be afraid to sneak purely personal messages into your work, okay? Those little accents really, I think, are exciting for the viewer because they get to peek inside of your crazy artist brain and see where you're coming from. And it's another way, like in the previous point, to kind of bridge that gap between what's going on in your head and communicating with the viewer. So little personal messages are, are really cool. But if you're like Picasso and you are sending messages to your mistress, then you are messy and foul. 
And am I being judgmental? Yeah, a little bit. Why? Because I want to. All right. All right, so that is it for today. That is Cubism wrapping up our lovely friend Pablo Picasso, uh, taking his example of being um, bold, being fearless, being innovative, collaborating with others, traveling, going within, um, you know, not being afraid to push beyond the boundaries and do things that have never been done before in quite the same way using materials like the way he used collage um, in a different way, using mixed media. Don't be afraid to do that. Pablo Picasso is our example. So next week, as I mentioned in the intro, we are going to be moving on to Think and Grow Rich for Artists. So we are going to get ourselves together financially as artists. That whole starving artist thing is tired, as I've said many times and will continue to say. So this group of listeners here, we are going to get ourselves together and we are going to be, we are going to be the light bearers to the light bearers, okay? We're going to be the kind of artists that are the leaders for other artists. We are going to have our stuff together, including our money, which is extremely important. All right, so until then, have a beautiful and productive week, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.